Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me onto a deep dive into church history, into the history of the biblical canon, the formation of the Bible, the the Reformation, and the early church, and all sorts of things across the span of church history. I ended up at one point looking into the Catholic Church, and it was then when I began to read from Catholic sources about actual Catholic theology, from, from the heart of what Catholics actually believed, well, it was then that I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholicism was oftentimes based on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. I have real Catholic conversations with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. And this week, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Gieszczek from the Augustine Institute. We're talking about the Bible. Do Catholics read the Bible? (laughs) It's an intentionally provocative question because it's one you hear often from non-Catholic Christians addressed towards Catholics. We have all these non-biblical beliefs. We have this incredible biblical uh, illiteracy, you could say. And so we dig deeply into that conversation, into that topic. How do Catholics read the Bible? How should Catholics read the Bible? And what is our relationship as Catholics with the Bible? It's a great conversation and one I'm happy to bring to you. This conversation and others, all others on this podcast are brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. And I have a whole bunch of new patrons to thank. Thank you to Jason, thank you to Sheila, thank you to Lise, and thank you to Marianne for your incredible contributions. You guys help to keep this show going and help to keep this show going every single week. So thank you guys. Thank you so much. If you want to help support this show, please head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or a one-time donation at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. And thank you. Thanks for listening. All of you guys. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic conversation with Dr. Mark Gieszczek on the Bible. Do Catholics even read the Bible? (laughs) Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for listening, thanks for being here, thanks for joining us again this week. Going to have a fantastic discussion. I'm joined by Dr. Mark Gieszczek. We're talking about the Bible, <laughs> of all things. Dr. Gieszczek studied philosophy and theology at Ave Maria College in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I wanted an excuse to say Ypsilanti, Michigan, so there you go. He was part of the inaugural class at the Augustine Institute in 2007, studying scripture and on from there to the Catholic University of America for doctoral work in biblical studies, and additionally has earned an SSB and an SSL from the Pontifical Biblical Commission in Rome. (laughs) You've heard of that place, too. Uh, Dr. Mark is the author of a fantastic book, Light on Dark Passages of Scripture from Our Sunday Visitor, and he comes this week bearing uh, the brand new, just off the presses, uh, Catholic uh, English Standard Version translation of the Bible, Catholic Edition from the Augustine Institute. It's a fantastic project they've just uh, undertaken and completed, and he's here on the heels of that. So fantastic. Dr. Gieszczek, thank you for being here. Welcome to the podcast and hello. Hi, it's great to be with you, Keith. Okay, I want to circle uh, around and talk about the new English Standard Version uh, of a Catholic edition. At the end of this conversation, because I'm a Bible nerd, and I love the scriptures. I've got a big pile of Bibles over here on my shelf, and I've been closely following the uh, ESV Catholic edition, slowly making its way towards wider publication. So excited to speak about that, but I want to start off with something a little more mundane, maybe, and, and by way of disclaimer, listeners to this podcast will know that I'm an evangelical convert to Catholicism. Many listeners 
uh, to this show are converts themselves or thinking of converting and looking to the Catholic faith. And uh, and this show, Mark, is all about dispelling those common misconceptions that non-Catholics have about us as Catholics. And certainly one of those biggest, if not the biggest misconception uh, that I had as an evangelical, and I think that most evangelicals have the same misconception, is that Catholics simply don't know the scriptures and that nothing they're doing, nothing we're doing in the mass and the rosary in our daily devotional lives, none of that can possibly be biblical because Catholics don't know their Bible. So I'm calling this episode, Do Catholics Even Read Their Bibles? Because I like being provocative <laughs> and because, well, it's a valid question that lots of non-Catholics have about us. So uh, do Catholics read their Bibles? H- how would you respond to a question like that as a scripture scholar? Well, I, I would say, uh, judging by the interest that's been generated by the ESV Catholic edition, uh, yes, Catholics do read their Bibles. And I think Catholics are reading their Bibles in greater and greater numbers. Uh, and it's very encouraging. Of course, I'm a Bible teacher. Uh, and so I get to see this in many different domains. But maybe to kind of give you a sense of like how this momentum is felt, like if you just sort of like look back over the past 50, 60 years since Vatican II, uh, things have really shifted, right? Things have really changed. There are a lot more Bible translations available now, not just in English, but in a lot of other languages. Um, and there are a lot more Bible study programs available now than there were at every single level from you know, kindergarten, comic book type Bible projects all the way up through you know, postgraduate studies. I mean, there's just so much available now that wasn't there before. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, if you reflect back on the history of the Catholic church, you know, I think it's true that you could think of the the Protestant Reformation as a kind of uh, biblical revolution, right? But I think a lot of people forget the fact that it was the English speaking Catholics that beat the King James translators to the punch and publishing the new Testament, so the Rames Testament, which is part of the Douay Rames, came out before the King James. And you know what? The King James translators actually used it to help them a little bit with their translation of the New Testament. So there's a strong tradition, especially in the English language, of Catholics taking the Bible seriously. But it's true that Catholics don't embrace the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, right? We believe in scripture and tradition, and we believe in the importance of the magisterium and so forth. So we, we have a lot more to think about. And, um, and Catholic practice is really focused, laser focused on prayer, the sacramental life, right? Uh, the mass. And I think oftentimes uh, in actual practice in Catholic devotional life, Bible reading is maybe in second or third or fourth place, right? Um, And I think that might be okay, right? If Jesus is in first place, right, and our connection with him in prayer and the sacraments is in first place, and Bible reading is in second place, I think that's okay, right? I think that's properly ordered, right? And Bible reading is a really important practice in Catholic spirituality. Um, And it takes on two forms, And these come from the ancient tradition of the church and are preserved in monastic life and in religious life. I like to think of them as fast and slow, right? Lexio Divina on the one hand, which is like the slow, prayerful reading of sacred scripture, which a lot of people are familiar with. There's been a lot of emphasis on it by the bishops over the past 10 or 20 years. Uh, And then Lexio Continua, which is the sort of reading straight through of the whole Bible, Um, And the Augustan Institute actually just released the ESV Catholic edition of the Bible in a Year product that we came out with a couple years ago. And uh, the Bible in a Year helps you do Lexio Continua uh, all the way through. You can read the whole Bible um, in 20 minutes a day in one year. So I think um, there's a strong tradition of Catholic Catholics reading the Bible prayerfully and for study, and that... uh, especially in the English language, there's been a real renewed zeal for Bible study since Vatican II. And uh, if you look at um, whether it be the numbers of people that attend uh, programs like the Denver Catholic Biblical School here in the Archdiocese of Denver, I've taught at the Denver Catholic Biblical School. Right now they have over 2,000 students. And and this is not just sort of like a casual Bible study. This is a four-year 
rigorous Bible study, 15 sessions in the fall, 15 in the spring, two hours a week. You have homework. You have to read your Bible. You have group discussions. Uh, you know, it's a pretty, in- you have to pay tuition. It's a pretty intensive process. And there are 2,000 people in there and they're growing, you know. And so I feel like that to me is a sign that people are really hungry for knowledge about the Bible and, uh, and are seeking it out, right? So whether that be by, you know, buying a study Bible or buying a commentary or, uh, you know, joining a Bible study group at their parish, Catholics are really hungry to know more about the Bible. And I think that the, the, crucial, the crucial thing is that reading the Bible is a form of spiritual sustenance, This is something that I think a lot of people overlook. They think of the Eucharist as a form of spiritual sustenance, that I go to Mass to get fed by Jesus in the Eucharist. And that's, of course, true. But there's a way in which at home, in my own room, in my bed, you know, before I go to sleep at night, I can read the Bible for a few minutes and actually connect with the Lord in a spiritual way uh, and not just a kind of intellectual or historical way. So anyway, I hope that gives you a little bit of a sense of sort of my read as to where Catholics are when it comes to reading the Bible. And I mean, maybe just like another, another uh, exciting thing. I, I'm uh, next, uh, I guess it's next week. I'm recording a few videos for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles for all of their Bible study leaders. And so they will be diving into these, uh, you know, videos. We're going to, I'm going to be talking about the wisdom literature and then I'm going to do a zoom call with them. Uh, and they're going to then be, you know, teaching, uh, in all of these Bible studies throughout the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. So I just think people are really hungry for more knowledge about Scripture, and when they kind of come to it, they fall in love with it, and they can't get enough. <laughs> That's all so well said. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, on the proliferation of, of Bibles and Bible studies and commentaries, I mean, I've never received so many Bibles in the mail as I have in the past couple of years being a Catholic, and people saying, hey, look, yeah. we've got a new Bible out. Check this out, and I'm, I'm just buying Bibles by the cartload sometimes because there's so many uh, coming out, which is fantastic. The Catholics have access to that, and so many commentaries and studies, and as you talk about these things, I think for me the interesting thing is, uh, coming from the evangelical world, we, we saw Catholics as not biblical because things they did, like the rosary, like the, the Eucharist, the Mass, it didn't seem to come from the Bible as we understood it, right? So we said, yeah. oh, that's not biblical. So they must not know their Bibles. If they knew the scriptures, they'd know they shouldn't be doing these things. They shouldn't be worshiping idols or doing all these kinds of crazy rituals, right? This is what we saw as evangelicals, what Catholics were doing, and yeah. we couldn't find that in our Bible, so, so we said they weren't biblical. Meanwhile, as you eloquently said, and as I came to realize as a Catholic and as many you know, converts realize, it's not just the Bible. So there, there's more to the, the history of Christianity than just the Bible. We have the magisterium, we have, we have tradition. We have these things uh, that, that the Bible sits within this larger tradition. And once you realize that, you realize, no, Catholics aren't being unbiblical. We just don't have the Bible. We don't have these 45-minute sermons at our church, unpacking the scriptures, and that's the center of our worship service. The Bible right. is the Bible is used extensively in the Mass. Uh, forms most of what's spoken at the Mass, apart from the homily, it comes from the scriptures, yeah. but in a different way than a Protestant church would unpack scriptures. Right, so it, it, it we're seen as not quite as biblical. Meanwhile, Mark, we we invented the Bible as Catholics, right? <laughs> <laughs> at least the table of contents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, I don't know if I want to go quite that far, uh, I but, but uh, I mean, something like the rosary, you know, which I think a lot of times people think of as unbiblical, well, if you think about the prayers that uh, the rosary is composed of, like the Our Father, Jesus teaches to his disciples, and it's right there in sacred scripture, you know, it's it's right there, you, you're just reciting part of the Bible, um, and the Hail Mary half of it is straight out of Luke chapter one, you know? I mean, it's not uh, an unbiblical prayer in that sense. Um, And if you think about what you're doing when you're praying the rosary, it's not just the recitation of the prayers, right? You're supposed to be meditating on the mysteries of the rosary. And the mysteries of the rosary are all in the gospels, right? They're all right there in the the Bible. So if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing when when you're praying the rosary, then you're doing a, a, a you're basically doing a prayerful Bible study every time you pray it, um, and I think you know sometimes people can can miss the forest for the trees you know when they think about uh, about these things, um, but it's true that the the Catholic way of uh, approaching sacred scripture is a little bit different than the Protestant way, 
you know, and part of that is because of the liturgical tradition that we've inherited and the theological tradition that we've inherited that's deeply philosophical and deeply informed by, you know, the early church fathers, the medieval theologians, the magisterium. Uh, we have a lot of resources at our disposal that aren't part of the way that Protestants or Protestant Bible scholars go about studying scripture. Um, but I think we can learn a lot from each other. And I think there's a, there's a lot of um, room to grow uh, in terms of Catholics coming to appreciate scripture more. And I think there's a lot of room to grow for Protestants, you know, appreciating the Christian intellectual tradition more. Uh, so I don't know, that's a, my perspective. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the challenges of reading the Bible is reading it in context, right? And I, I can think of a dozen guests on this show alone who've described coming to a greater understanding of Catholicism, eventually converting in those cases, based merely on being able to read uh, the scriptures in a, with a new set of lenses on. I mean, you and I, for example, mm-hmm. read the scriptures as Catholics and see a passage like John, John 6, the Bread of Life discourse, where Jesus says over and over again, he must eat his flesh and doubles down when his followers think he's speaking metaphorically or ask for clarification. You know, we read passages like that and see a clear teaching on, how, on what we call the Eucharist, that when we do communion, what's happening is the bread and wine are becoming Jesus's flesh and blood, like he said they would in a miraculous way. But that certainly wasn't the way I understood those passages, uh, for example, as an evangelical. I mean, communion was all symbolic, but we're looking at those same passages, those same pieces of scripture. So, Okay, so I have to jump in on that point, uh, (laughs) because this is one of my favorite things about the ESV Catholic edition. Uh, And it's there in the ESV Protestant edition too. If you go to John chapter 6, verse 54 and 56, and this is what exactly what you're alluding to, where Jesus changes the verb that he's using, right? In most translations, he just says, you know, eat my flesh, eat my flesh, eat my flesh, and it just says, eat, eat, eat. But in the Greek, like you're pointing out, right, the verb actually changes from the normal word for eating, estio, to this other word that means like chewing, trogo. In the ESV, the words change, the translation changes, the verb changes. It goes from eat, eat, eat to feed on. Right. So he who feeds on my flesh uh, in John 6, 54 and 56, you you pick up that one subtlety in Jesus's bread of life discourse in the ESV and you miss it in most other translations. So I I'm uh, I I think it's pretty impressive. Right. That the evangelical translators who uh, who, uh, you know, gave us the ESV originally uh, were that attentive to 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 detail and committed to. Uh, you know, biblical uh, authority that they uh, tweaked that verb there in John six fifty four and fifty six. <laughs> That's fantastic. I wonder what 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 words of advice you have for this idea of reading the scripture with the Catholic lens, because like I said, you know, we're looking at the same scriptures, and I'm glad that they've clarified that a little bit in the ESV. That's fantastic. What what do you have to offer for Catholics in order to understand how to read the scriptures through a Catholic lens then? And maybe a challenge you'd offer to non-Catholic Christians, maybe help them see a bit more of the Catholic point of view. What would yeah. you say? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is a kind of patience, a kind of intellectual patience. And we live in an intellectually impatient era, right? We live in the era of Twitter where everything is condensed into 168 characters, or now it's 256 or whatever it is, right? Um, And I think that in order to really understand the Catholic tradition, you have to kind of pause, right, and reflect and think and read a lot, right, and read widely uh, in the tradition in order to start to kind of get your arms around it, right? Because... Uh, I think sometimes people think of Christianity as like a religion of the book. Like, well, we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, now we have this book, and now that's Christianity. But Jesus didn't write a book, you know? And uh, in this intriguing part of the Summa Theologica, St. Thomas reflects on why Jesus didn't write a book. And I find it really helpful, right, that in his explanation, he says, you know, the part of the problem would be that if Jesus wrote a book— then we would think that we would get confused and think that our relationship with the book is what mattered rather than our, rather than our relationship with him. And we would begin to think of the book as our bridge to heaven rather than thinking of the God man himself as the bridge to heaven. And I feel like that's a really profound insight for our relationship with scripture, right? That scripture it's God's word. It's God breathed. It comes from God. So it has this divine quality to it. And yet, in itself, it's not enough, right? 
because Jesus is our Savior, right? Not the Bible, the book, right? Jesus himself, the living word of God, he is the one who redeems us from sin. And we don't repent and turn to a book. We repent and turn to a person. And so I, I think, you know, transforming the way we think about Scripture from, if you will, a kind of sola scriptura, evangelical Protestant mode into a Catholic mode is to, yes, to be conscious of history, conscious of tradition, to read widely and broadly, but to think about it in terms of the Bible as like a personal outreach from God to man, but not as the bridge itself, right? Jesus is the bridge between God and man, and the Bible helps us discover who he is. Maybe one other way of thinking about this that I think is a distinction between a Protestant and Catholic approach to theology and scripture in general is to go back to the book of wisdom. So I'm, I'm working on a commentary right now on the book of wisdom and uh, uh, the book of wisdom, I think is the most philosophical book in the Bible. Maybe Ecclesiastes is a little bit more, but the book of wisdom is deeply philosophical in that it's combining the Greek philosophical tradition with a kind of biblical Jewish approach to salvation history. And I think the Book of Wisdom is a kind of preview of the birth of Christianity. A lot of times, like I was saying, we think of Christianity as like a religion of the book, but in fact, Christianity dawns, right? The gospel is first preached into a very complex, multilingual milieu in the Greco-Roman world, where you have a lot of Jews who are deeply philosophical. And I think you see that reflected in the Gospel of John and the writings of St. Paul and, of course, in the early church fathers, where the, the very first Christians were not, uh, if you will, biblicists, right? The v- very first Christians were biblical philosophers, right, or philosophical biblicists, right? And they, they had a complex conception of who God was that was deeply informed by the, the philosophical norms of the day, and that, of course, leads to the development and the doctrine of the Trinity, to our understanding of who Christ is, and to the repudiation of heretical views in the first few centuries of the church. And I think that that wasn't possible without the aid of philosophy. And I think that uh, adopting a kind of philosophical mode of thinking about Jesus, about God, about the Bible, about the way God communicates to us is a characteristic of a Catholic approach to sacred scripture that you would find a lot less emphasis in a kind of evangelical approach. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Mark, one of the tendencies of, of Protestantism, and I was in this camp with lots of other listeners too, is to pit Scripture against Scripture. This is kind of the sole Scripture in action, right? The idea that the Bible is the ultimate source of authority in the life of the Christian, and it becomes challenging when honest, earnest believers encounter two passages of Scripture that seem to be at odds with one another or difficult to reconcile. And if they're suddenly faced with this realization, as, as I was, that some stuff uh, that I held to be true as an evangelical, uh, maybe there's contrary evidence in the Bible that, that becomes challenging as well. So you're a Catholic, you're a professor of sacred scripture. What do you do when you encounter things in the Bible that seem difficult or seem hard to reconcile? Yeah. Yeah, this is where I think tradition and the magisterium become really, really important. And maybe one way of reflecting on it is to actually dial back to pre-Christian Judaism and the way that they thought about scripture, right? So again, we think about scripture as it's like, well, there's this list of books we call the canon. Books are either in or they're out. And now we know, you know, which books are in. And then like, then we sort of like start building from there. But for the ancient Jews, it was more like concentric circles, right? Where you had the Torah at the center and the Torah was like, that's the word of God, right? That's the most important thing. The first five books of the Bible. And then you have a kind of like layer around that in the prophets, right, both the former prophets and the latter prophets. And they have a kind of like another circle out in the writings, you know, like Song of Songs and uh, Ruth and some of these other kind of books that are kind of hard to fit in. And then there's like sort of another layer that's not exactly canonical. That's like these kind of other texts, like, uh, you know, Book of Enoch or Testament of Levi or some of these other things that are kind of alluded to in the New Testament a couple times. Um, But you have another really important layer which is what they called the oral Torah, right? Which is like the traditions of the rabbis of like how to interpret Torah. And the oral Torah wasn't something that they just sort of like, oh, it's like, well, this teacher thinks this and this teacher thinks that and we don't really care. 
the oral Torah was something that they would memorize, right? They would literally memorize the opinions of different rabbis, and that all becomes cataloged and actually written down. The oral Torah, ironically, gets written down in what we call the Mishnah. Um, but Jesus is an active participant in the oral Torah tradition, right? So he'll say things like, you've heard that it was said. Well, what is he doing? He's referring to the teachings of other rabbis and saying, but I say to you, right? Offering his own rabbinical teaching. That idea of having the Torah plus the oral Torah is really, really important because we don't fully understand the Torah without an interpretation. So the oral Torah functioned as, if you will, a kind of tradition or magisterium for the ancient Jews. And if you sort of fast forward to our contemporary situation, and you think about the way that uh, the evangelical world processes biblical information and theology. And, you know, of course, right, there's the idea in Protestantism, well, everyone can interpret the Bible for themselves. And there's the idea of sola scriptura. But in practice, that's actually not how it works out. Now, I don't think a lot of people would like me talking about it this way, but for a lot of Protestants, they have a Jewish conception of canon as a kind of set of concentric circles. And you know what's at the middle of that circle? It's not the Gospels. <laughs> it's actually Romans. Right? Romans is the most authoritative book, and Galatians is really darn close, you know? And then you sort of start moving out. Maybe the Gospels are the next layer, and then maybe Paul's other epistles, and then eventually you get to the epistles by the other apostles, and well, the book of Revelation's in there somewhere, but no one really knows how to interpret it. And then the Old Testament, okay, we'll just kind of throw that in. But there really is a kind of concentric circle approach to the canon in, um, in Protestantism, where you have that idea of, like, Scripture interprets Scripture, but really what it is is one Scripture trumps another based on this artificial sort of hierarchy of books that exists in the Protestant consciousness. Now, the other thing that happens that I find like sort of humorous, right? As a Catholic, right? As I sort of like peer into the evangelical theological society or other, you know, groups uh, of evangelicals is that you end up having a kind of de facto magisterium of biblical scholars, right? In theory, you're not supposed to have a magisterium, it's just sola scriptura. Everybody interprets for himself, but you end up with a de facto magisterium where it's like, oh, well, I follow John MacArthur or I follow John Piper or I follow, um, I don't know, any, you know, Ben Witherington or any number of evangelical scholars, Craig Keener. You know, there are all sorts of, you know, wonderful evangelical scholars who are very brilliant, right? I follow N.T. Wright or whatever. And um, they end up becoming the principal interpreters of sacred scripture, for a certain like subset of the evangelical world, which is ironic and it's sort of like exactly against the sort of technical claims of Protestant theology, right? It's not supposed to happen that way, but in fact it does, right? And those people sell a lot of books. One other thing that it leads to that I think is actually really dangerous for my Protestant friends is a kind of theological relativism. So you, you get a sense of this um, in, I don't know exactly what the right term is, but a kind of like big tent evangelicalism where uh, it's like, oh, well, you're Lutheran. Well, that's okay. Or I'm, I'm Presbyterian, but you're Lutheran. And, you know, we're both evangelicals. We both love Jesus. We both love sacred scripture. You know, that's not really a big deal, you know, or, or you're reformed or you're, uh, you're non-denominational and that's okay because we love Jesus, we all love scripture, we all read the Bible together, or whatever. But that's actually kind of a problem, I think, from a Catholic <laughs> vantage point. It's like, you know, people like died for the doctrines of your particular denomination. Like, uh, I don't think you want to be a theological relativist. And, and it's like, well, but, but we all sort of agree on like the basics, right? We all agree on like the Apostles' Creed or whatever. And so like, you're saved, I'm saved, it's all okay. I, I think I think there's something problematic in that kind of theological relativism, and it leads to a lot of weird things, right? Where people who attend a church where the pastor's a theological relativist have a kind of cavalier approach to Christian doctrine, and and they don't really have a f complete understanding of of why they're engaged in this kind of relativism, and then it leads people into much more dangerous territory where they become relativists about 
moral theology, right, about the moral teachings of Jesus and the Bible. And this leads down a really dark road, which leads to sin, right? And, and sin leads to hell. <laughs> I don't want to cut you off and stop you. That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, that, uh, the example of the, of the rings of authority of the canon is exactly right. I mean, uh, you, you completely nailed it from your perspective. This is how the Bible is seen. And when you, and when you pit scripture against scripture, I think of a, a good friend of mine who's an evangelical. Uh, we debate once in a while. We usually have a really good knockout, drag him out fight, uh, you know, once every couple of years over something in the, in the scriptures, because I converted. We were good friends with evangelicals. I oh, became wow, Catholic. Yeah. And so we remain very good friends and occasionally bring up the topic of scripture, argue really, really, really voraciously for a couple of days yeah. and then leave it for a couple of years and then come back to something <laughs> else. It's it's very healthy dynamic in our relationship. We remain very good friends, but he was arguing with me one time with this idea of scripture, interpreting scripture, and I brought him John 6 and said, okay, look, Jesus is speaking quite literally. If you're a biblical literalist, what do you make of this? You know, even even Paul later on his letters refers to speaks of of the Lord's Supper very literally. Paul doesn't say yeah. it's symbolic. I, it used to drive me crazy in evangelical churches as an evangelical when I heard the pastor would would add in the word uh, symbol. Right? No, no, no. Paul right. Paul is not read the scriptures. Paul is not saying it anyway. That's a tangent. The, the The point is, I brought this passage to him and said, "Okay, so what do you make of this?" And he said, "Well, scripture interprets scripture and." You know, over here in Romans, it says this, or so Jesus clearly just means he's speaking of his flesh as his crucifixion and we're going to be receive life through his life and death because this verse over here references that. And I said, well, what you're saying is true and you put a great uh, point on it, right? It's those, you're weighing certain books of the Bible against other books of the Bible, giving certain ones a greater weight than other ones. And it's an arbitrary scale. I mean, uh, and the idea of this of, of these these theologians, these cancel theologians that you kind of subscribe to, is exactly exactly it as well. Is the de facto magisterium? I think you said, which is a fant- kind of a fantastic uh, term. That that was me, Mark. One of the things that drove me to look into the Catholic faith was a non-denominational church that I belonged to, where we hadn't really defined a lot of things. We hadn't really defined what marriage was to us or what sexuality wow. meant to us. Yeah. We, we were Pentecostal nominally and kind of broke off from that denomination and so had a very loose uh, belief statement. And we began to investigate that as a, as a church and the, and the steering committee, they began to investigate that. Well, it turns out that the church was totally split on that topic. Like half the congregation believed one thing, half another. Yeah. A, a bunch left when eventually the decision was made on what the, the, the church actually believed because there was such disparity, all reading the same scriptures, but it came down to which theologian you would look at as an evangelical, which theologian and their interpretation of those scriptures you, you kind of fell into. And I realized as an evangelical at that point, you know what, there's got to be a better way than this. There's got to be a better way than than picking the theologian that we agree with the most. And that's when I began to look into, uh, in, in some depth, kind of the Catholic Church and Catholic teaching. So that really, that, that, that magisterium, recognizing that de facto magisterium that we carried around as evangelicals and how we approach the Bible, yes, the Bible is central, but as you said, you, you have to make some kind of decision on how you interpret certain things and who you follow and what you believe when it comes to actually unpacking that scripture. It doesn't do it for you by itself. It isn't this thing you can yeah. just read and, and understand, or you wouldn't have a job, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's uh, that's a good thing that the Bible needs to be taught and interpreted. I, I think, you know, what, what you're saying brings me back to uh, an idea in the Catholic tradition that uh, when we look for evidence of uh, a traditional Christian belief in the the writings of the ancient Christians, we're looking for the unanimous opinion of the fathers, right? So if, I don't know, Theodore of Mopsuestia or uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria had, you know, a kind of unusual opinion about some biblical passage or doctrine, but nobody else really shared it and it it wasn't in any other cities or in the writings of any other fathers, then, you know, maybe it's just an idiosyncratic opinion. But if it's an idea that's shared, you know, by St. Augustine and St. Jerome and, you know, all of the, you know, great saints of the early church, then that's a pretty good indication that this is a doctrine of the Catholic faith and not just a kind of uh, opinion. Um, And I, I think that, gives us a kind of safeguard, right? Where 
I don't know. I mean, sometimes people worry like, oh, well, you know, the Holy Father said this or, you know, some cardinal said that or a bishop said this in, you know, his diocesan newspaper. Or, and I, I think that there's a kind of um, uh, uh, presentism or whatever at work in those conversations where people are prioritizing the most recent statement by whatever authority rather than looking to the ancient tradition of the church that organically grows and develops over the centuries, you know, inch by inch and little by little. And that the, the beauty of the whole, I think, is what we should be looking for rather than the sort of like most innovative opinion that somebody maybe most recently expressed. And that the unity of the Christian faith is what matters, right? It, it brings us to Christ. It brings us to our knees. It brings us to repentance and conversion and eventually to eternal life. And that's what matters. And um, I think in our culture, right, which is, of course, very anti-Christian and very secular and so forth, it's very easy for people to sort of give in to the world around them and, and to and – to, make compromises and to capitulate, right, to the claims of our current society when, you know, in fact, as Christians, right, the claims of our current society have no hold over us, right? What has claim, what has a hold over our lives is the claims of Jesus and his church. And that's what we really care about. So I, I don't know. I think, um, I think that the, the tradition of the church and the magisterium, and especially the role of the Holy Father of preserving unity, have a really profound impact on sort of holding the whole church together. And, and then this is one of the things I just love about, about the Catholic Church, right, is that it's a universal communion all over the globe. You know, going to something like World Youth Day or, you know, some of these great events in Rome, of course, not during COVID times. Uh, you know, it just it's an incredible experience to just see Catholics from all over the world, speaking a variety of languages with a variety of perspectives and opinions about life and different ways of doing things. And yet we're all united in Christ. And I think that sort of beautiful unity in diversity is what the Catholic church beautifully embodies and expresses. <laughs> Very well said. I think one of the uh, reasons that Catholics get a bad rap when it comes to the Bible stems from the classic Protestant question, where's that in the Bible? We addressed this a little bit earlier, but maybe you've heard this. You know, when it comes to things like the Immaculate Conception or Mary's perpetual virginity or purgatory or infant baptism, the classic retort is, okay, where's that in the Bible? And oftentimes yeah. Catholics just don't know how to answer that. And I think, first of all, we as Catholics need to become more biblically literate, probably, reading sure. the Bible a bit more. And but also need to know how to answer questions like this uh, effectively and, and fruitfully. So what advice would you give somebody who's encountered a question like this, a question like, where's that in the Bible? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny because I feel like the where's that in the Bible question is like a Protestant mode of discourse, right? If you are a sola scriptura Christian, that is your question, right? If you're a Catholic, that's not your question. Right. Your question is, you know, what time is mass? <laughs> what, uh, you know, where's the confessional at this parish? Right. Uh, your question is, you know, when's the next Eucharistic adoration event at my parish? Your question's different. Right. It's not the same as where's that in the Bible. And so I think um, so I guess I would encourage people to some extent to kind of reorient the conversation toward communion with Christ in the heart of his church and away from, if you will, petty doctrinal disputes. But if you want to know the answer, all you got to do is pick up the catechism of the Catholic church. It's got every answer you're looking for right there with <laughs> biblical references and a biblical index, right? So you can find every answer to every one of those questions in the catechism. Um, but I, I think that there's a, a sense where I would encourage people to deprioritize uh, those doctrinal questions and instead get to the heart of the matter, right? What is it right, about your, your will, about your heart, that says, I need to interpret the Bible for myself, and I don't want anybody else to tell me how to do it? Like, where does that come from? What does that mean? Like, what, why do you feel that way? Do you think the first Christians felt that way? Do you think Christians in the early church felt that way? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think uh, that, that would be sort of my comeback, if you will. Uh, but yeah, grab the catechism off the shelf, right? Start looking things up. You can find infant baptism and purgatory and the Immaculate Conception and anything you want in there. And if you want to go like one level deeper, 
okay? You look in your catechism and you find all those references in the footnotes that say DS, DS, DS. What the heck is that, right? It's Denzinger Schonmetzer, which is this gigantic compendium of magisterial statements, which used to only be available in German and Latin, but now there's an English edition from Ignatius Press. It's like 60 bucks. You know, go get that, and you can look up all of the references to all the magisterial statements that are in the catechism. So, I mean, those types of steps, I think, are really helpful. And, you know, there are resources out there like Catholic Answers, which I think can be really helpful for people getting into this. But I would really encourage people to reorient their perspective and get away from the sort of like fisticuffs of apologetics and get into Catholic theology. You know, go read a book by uh, Father Thomas Joseph White, like his book, uh, what's it called? The Light of Christ, an introduction to Catholicism. You know, go read a book like that, like a real theology book. And then come back to the conversation with a different perspective. <laughs> That's a great answer. And the catechism, I mean, what a resource. I can think of the, the first line for our conversations with, with non-Catholic Christians needs to be, okay, what does the catechism say? Because we, we so oftentimes, at least I do, in these conversations, I'm trying to kind of dig my way out or find my own ammunition to, to bring to this conversation. That's a bad analogy. I'm not bringing ammunition to a conversation, but trying to bring my own evidence or whatever you, what have you to the conversation. And you forget that the catechism has already sorted out all these things for us, what we believe and how to explain them. And I, I, have, I can't count the number of Protestant friends or people I've heard on this show talk about just encountering the catechism and just being blown away by the number of scripture references in the catechism. It's just resplendent with scripture. And, yeah. and right there goes out the window immediately the idea that Catholics aren't biblical because here's, here's just a, a wealth of scripture resources underpinning why we believe what we believe as Catholics. Right. Yeah, and I would say... Um, the Catholic appropriation of Scripture is different than the Protestant one because it has, uh, I would say, more ancient and a, uh, more ancient roots and a kind of different different set of roots, right? So, if you think about um, Catholics in ages bygone, most of them couldn't read, right? I mean, most of most of people most people were illiterate up until relatively recent times, you know. I mean, really until the the sort of promulgation of public education and so forth in the 1800s, most people couldn't read. Uh, and you know, even in uh, the 1800s, you know, if you went into a average family home, you might find one book, and that book would be a Bible. Right. Uh, in the United States, you know, on the plains or whatever. Um, so I think that like the idea of people having ready and easy access to scripture is relatively new in the life of the church. And that the traditional way of appropriating scripture was by memorizing, you know, small parts of it by memorizing prayers and creeds and by memorizing the liturgy, by praying the Psalms and this sort of thing. And that the language of scripture would be sort of like incorporated into your life of prayer and daily recitation. Whereas I think the sort of Protestant approach, if you will, to sacred scripture it is premised on the printing press, right? And the ability of, of uh, to, to have a printed Bible and carry it around with you and then to sort of examine scripture in uh, in the different books uh, of sacred scripture. So, for example, like I think a lot of Catholics... Uh, if you ask them, you know, what's in the letter to the Romans, they won't be able to tell you anything, right? Even if they've heard the letter to the Romans a million times read from the pulpit, uh, and they actually have a bunch of the lines memorized in their minds, they've never like sat down and like studied Romans, which is a Protestant thing to do, that again sort of goes back to this like printing press approach to the to the sacred scriptures. I am really curious as to how the digital revolution is going to affect biblical literacy. And I don't think we really know yet. People are still carrying around their print Bibles, you know. But now people are accessing the Bible on their phone in multiple translations, right? Of course, you can Google it and look at any passage in any translation on the Internet. It's very easy to access Scripture electronically. And I think that the coming generation is going to be reading Scripture electronically more than they read it on paper. And I'm really curious as to how that changes biblical literacy and whether we'll see a difference between Protestants and Catholics or whether they'll be sort of moving closer together. (laughs) Very good point. Very interesting to watch. Yeah. 
Dark passages of the Bible. You've written a book on this, quite literally. Yeah. Some of these uh, dark, difficult parts of Scripture, you know, God commanding genocide or condoning slavery. Some of these challenging sections of the Bible present a real problem for even those Catholics who are really well-versed in Scriptures and so often provide evidence for the atheist, right? Yeah, We could sure. do a whole show on this. <laughs> but but yeah. briefly, briefly, what do you say when someone challenges us with these so-called dark passages of Scripture? Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, my full statement in response is the book, right? <laughs> yeah. But I think there are a, a handful of things that are worth thinking about right at the beginning, right? That while it's true that some of these biblical passages are difficult to explain, right? Why does God command the killing of the Canaanites? Or, you know, why does God kill all these people at the flood? Or what, what about the children who die in the Bible? And you know, what about Jephthah? You know, there are all these kind of like weird moments in the Bible and places like the book of Judges or whatever that are kind of hard to explain. I think the important thing to remember is that every worldview, right? So whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a Muslim, a Christian, a Jew, a Hindu, whatever you are, right? Every single worldview um, has to answer the difficult questions itself, right? And you know, if you adopt a typical kind of agnostic or atheist stance and you start asking questions about suffering or difficulty or challenge that I experience in my life or things being unfair or whatever, you know, the, the ultimate explanations are, well, it's, it's random, it's chance, right? There's, there is no explanation. There's no meaning to your suffering or whatever. And I think that the Christian response, even though I think that there are difficult parts of it that aren't easy to explain, the Christian response to the problem of suffering, the problem of evil in the world, the problem of darkness in scripture and other places, right, is the most satisfying response. It doesn't mean that it's like airtight and hermetically sealed and there are no difficulties or questions that we might have lingering at the end of the day, but I think it's the best response, the most satisfying one, the one that makes the most sense, so I, I guess that would be my, my sort of teaser for uh, the Dark Passages book, right? Don't ignore the Dark Passages. Don't skip them. Read them. Try to understand them, explain them, and meditate on them. Yeah, that's a great answer, right? Because there, there are, that's what you weigh out, right? There are, we all face those dark situations where it seems like things are being, I mean, uh, that God is, is doing bad things to us. We encounter these in our, yeah. in our daily lives sometimes. But what has the best answer? Well, if, if it's Christianity, then it's Christianity. And, and we explore that further, right? That's a, that's a great, I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about the Catholic edition of the English Standard Version of the Bible in a second, I, pr I promise. So I want to talk about translation in general for a second, Mark, because sure, sure. when I became a fiery evangelical Christian and had my born-again moment, uh, I was in high school, and I had my mom drive me to the local Christian bookstore. Thanks, Mom. And when I asked for a good teen Bible, the woman at the counter handed me an NIV, the New International Version, translation of the yeah. Bible, the, the, the really cool teen study version, I think it was. And it wasn't really until much later that I realized how different biblical translations can be. And even later still, when I became a Catholic, that I realized there actually was some kind of bias underlying certain translations that honestly affected sure. some of the things that I believed as an evangelical. I mean, the actual translation had a bearing on my theology. Um, I'm thinking of one particular example uh, that I think I heard first heard from Jimmy Aiken from Catholic Answers, a uh, guest on this show, uh, and, and that was the idea of the word tradition being translated in the NIV, right? In, in one place, mm -hmm. it's, it's translated favorably, it's translated as, as teaching, and in other places, it's translated as, as tradition when it refers to the Pharisees. And yeah. honestly... As an evangelical, I can draw a straight line from my evangelical disdain for Catholic tradition because the only context we saw for the word tradition in the New Testament was connected to the Pharisees, this, this bad idea. Mm. I don't know if I'm stretching things or not, but uh, you know, the idea that translations can affect theology s seems to me, in, in hindsight, to be a real live thing. What would you say on this kind of idea of, of translation affecting theology? I think that's true. I mean, I think the um, the advantage of being part of a multilingual communion in the Catholic Church is that we have many, many languages operating at all times all over the world in all sorts of seminaries, theological schools, chanceries, and churches. And um, I think that's actually really helpful to us. Um, I think that the uh, the fact that Latin uh, was the predominant language in Europe and in the church for such a long time 
actually really helped us because Latin is a very transparent militaristic language, right? If you think of the ancient Romans, right, they were tough people, you know, they don't, they don't bother with words like the, you know, uh, they just, you know, everything's very straightforward, clear and measured. And there's something really wonderful about even the Latin appropriation of the Greek philosophical tradition, right? Greek is a very nuanced, complicated philosophical language with a very large vocabulary. And the, the Romans, right, appropriate the Greek philosophical tradition and then sort of simplify it, right, and sort of make everything more clear. So the fact that all of our official dogmatic statements are in Latin is actually really helpful. And then the Latin text becomes what we call the editio typica, right, the one from which every, every other uh, language comes. And I think that I think that that's been really helpful at promoting unity in the, in the Catholic church in in the Latin church. Now that said, uh, Archbishop Arthur Roche, who's the secretary for the congregation of divine worship likes to say English is the new Latin. (laughs) Why? Because English is the most widely spoken language on planet earth today, just like Latin was say 500 years ago or more. And uh, because of this, the Vatican takes a lot of interest in English translations of the liturgy and in English translations of scripture uh, because it knows the Vatican knows that these translations will be the most widely disseminated Catholic translations uh, you know, in the world, right? More so than Latin or French or Italian or German or any other language, more people will be praying in English than any other language. And so they really are concerned with getting those translations right. Um, so I don't know if that gives a kind of uh, helpful perspective on how I think about uh, translation affecting theology, uh, but I think you're right. At every level, it does. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, tell us about the Catholic edition of the English Standard Version, because I've been following this since, I think, 2018, and I'm so pleased that it's finally being released here in North America. So can you talk a bit about the, the process, what went on here, what makes the ESV uh, so an important contribution to the Catholic scripture landscape? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so the ESV originally came out in 2001 uh, from Crossway Books in Wheaton, Illinois. And it was put together by a team of evangelical scholars, the Translation Oversight Committee. And... Um, uh, and I, I think it's become pretty popular in the Protestant world. They've had several different uh, uh, Bibles that they, you know, have sold have sold well over a million copies. It's used uh, in a lot of websites and software platforms and so forth. And uh, the uh, the ESV, you know, is widely disseminated in the English speaking world. And in 2016, uh, the Asian Trading Corporation (ATC) reached out to Crossway Books and said, hey, you know, we would like to do a Catholic edition of the ESV for use in the liturgy here in India. What do you think? And uh, I, have to, I have to think that that phone call created a bit of a stir in Wheaton. You know? <laughs> like, I, I just don't know what they would have thought of it. Uh, but, um, but they said, yes, yeah, we would like, we would like to, to do it. And so, in, um, so the, the Catholic bishops had a team of Catholic scholars review the ESV Bible. And the original ESV, which came out in 2001, of course, didn't include the deuterocanonical books. But Crossway had done a joint project with Oxford University Press in 2009, where they published the uh, deuterocanonical books. And so they were able to take that translation of those books and combine it with the original ESV. They had a team of Catholic scholars review it and make a small number of changes to the text, not very many, not very significant. Some of them were literally just punctuation. And then they uh, uh, presented that to the Catholic bishops of India as a whole. And it was approved in accord with canon law in 2018 uh, by the Catholic bishops of India under the new process for approving translations with the, which the Vatican outlined. Um, And then uh, it was, uh, then the lectionary that they compiled uh, on the, based on the ESV Catholic edition text was approved by the Vatican in December of 2019. So I think the, the beauty of it is that because the translation oversight committee of the ESV 
was so committed to accuracy and to transparency and to essentially literal translation that they um, accidentally, if you will, ended up adhering to a Vatican document that was published right around the same time they were working called Liturgium Authenticum. And Liturgium Authenticum outlines the parameters for Catholic translations of scripture and the liturgy and particularly scripture in the liturgy. And it, it essentially, it, it, it insists on literal translation, on word-for-word style translation, on transparency to the original languages and so forth. And that's exactly what Crossway did, right? The ESV was translated to be as transparent as possible to the original languages. And it turns out that both Protestants and Catholics love accurate Bible translations. We both love accurate Bible translations. <laughs> Why figure. is it so hard for the world to understand? You know, we both love accurate Bible translations, and the ESV is accurate. And so the Catholic Church said, you know what? We like this, and we want to use it. So now, if you go to Mass in India, uh, you're going to hear the ESV Catholic Edition translation read from the pulpit. <laughs> well, that's fantastic, and that's great. Yeah, I've been following that since it first was was issued in India, waiting for it to come here to Canada and following yeah. that really obscure, <sighs> well, obscure to, to many uh, biblical translation forums and, and what have you. And Yeah, fascinating uh, drama to watch unfold, so very grateful to you guys at the Gusson Institute to have this thing uh, finally come out. For us to get our hands on, so very thrilled. Uh, Mark, it's been a, a pleasure to have you here uh, for this conversation on biblical literacy and the Bible and <laughs> these great topics. Where can people go to get their hands on, on this Bible, hear more from you, get more of the stuff that, that you're doing? What do you want to tell us? Where do you want to point listeners <laughs> towards? <laughs> sure. So if you want to check out the ESV Catholic Edition, uh, you can go to catholicbible.org and you can get a copy in paperback, leather, hardback, you know, we have a lot of different editions available at catholicbible.org. We also just released, like I mentioned, the Bible in a Year in the ESV Catholic Edition. So same website, catholicbible.org. You can also look at our other website, catholic.market, and you can track down all of those Bible products um, uh, that are in the English Standard Version Catholic Edition. If you want an electronic edition, Right now, there's only one available, and it's in the Verbum uh, software platform. So I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, from f- the great people at Faith Life, and that's $9.99. That's the cheapest way to get access to the text if you want to take a look at it. Um, and I love that edition, right, because you can do the interlinear stuff, and you can click on things and look up dictionaries, and it interacts with the rest of the software. It's inside the software platform. So, uh, you, But you can get a free edition of the software and just buy the Bible if you just want to look at the electronic text. Um, if you want to find out more about what I'm up to, you can take a look at my blog, catholicbiblestudent.com. And uh, I'm up to a lot of things. Like I said, I'm I'm working on a a commentary right now on the Book of Wisdom for the new Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture series on the Old Testament from Baker Academic. So I'm really looking forward to that coming out uh, probably in 2022. Uh, And you mentioned my book from OSV, The Light on the Dark Passages of Scripture. And hopefully very soon, uh, I've got a new book that I finish uh, and that's under contract and that should be coming out from the Augustine Institute in the next few months. Uh, about the ESV Catholic edition. Uh, And so that book uh, will explain more about the translation, where it came from, the backstory, and so forth. Very good. (laughs) Sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I want to say God bless you. God bless the fantastic work you're doing for the church. Uh, Thank you for being here, and uh, thanks for your time. It's really been a pleasure, Keith, and I wish you the best uh, on the Cordial Catholic. Uh, I think you're doing great work. Well, thank you very much. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Mark. I think it was a fantastic one. Uh, very enjoyable to have, and hopefully you enjoyed listening to it as well. And I should say, this is the first conversation coming to you from my brand new studio nook in the basement of our house here. 
uh, listeners of this show for a long time have been following the drama of creating this little studio down in the basement here. And it's you patrons I have to thank for helping to fund this whole little project. So thank you. Patreon.com slash CordialCat. That's where you can go to help support this show. Or, pat- or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic for a one-time donation. Thanks, guys. TheCordialCatholic.com is my website for my blog, uh, for show notes for this show and past things we've done and, and I've written. Check that out. CordialCatholic at gmail.com is my email address. I write back to all the feedback that I can as soon as I can. I love hearing from you guys, so please do send me an email to CordialCatholic at gmail.com with your feedback. I'd love to hear from you. At Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and please do subscribe to this podcast. Please follow it. Please like it. Please leave a rating and review if you can. Those ratings and reviews go a long, long way towards pushing this podcast out to new people and uh, growing the fan base. Growing the <laughs> fan base. I hate that idea. <laughs> Growing the base of listeners to this show, which helps to spread the message of the Catholic faith and to help evangelize. That's the whole point of this thing. So please do leave those ratings and reviews if you can. Thanks for listening, guys. Please pray for me. Know that I'm praying for you too. And I'll talk to you again next week. God bless, guys. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.